Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu. From the Hunter Conference Center on the campus of Southern Utah University, welcome to Access Utah. I'm UPR Southern Utah correspondent Chris Holmes. Coverage of the Utah Rural Summit now in its second day here in Cedar City, made possible in part by Utah State University Extension. Now in its 26th year, the Utah Rural Summit is a service of Southern Utah University's Office of Regional Services for these two days each year in August. County, municipal, and state leaders, as well as other stakeholders, gather from throughout Utah to explore issues that impact rural life, to hear from experts on the latest information pertaining to rural life, and to discuss these policies necessary to maintaining and expanding the political, cultural, and economic relevance of rural communities. As we noted, the summit is in its second day now. Yesterday, the conference opened, and attendees heard from Utah's Governor Gary Herbert. We will also hear some of Gary Herbert's remarks later in this program. The afternoon keynote address was delivered by Congressman Rob Bishop, a Republican from Utah's 1st Congressional District. The congressman sits on the House Committee on Natural Resources as well as the Subcommittee on Public Lands and Environmental Regulation. He is, in fact, the chairman of that subcommittee. I had the opportunity to sit down one-on-one with Representative Rob Bishop. We'll also have that conversation for you in the second half hour of Access Utah. But first, we bring you my conversation with Charles Fluharty. Mr. Fluharty is the founding director of the Rural Policy Research Institute and was the keynote speaker in yesterday's opening session at the summit. After his keynote address, I had the opportunity to sit down with Charles Fluharty one-on-one. Charles Fluharty is founding director of the Rural Policy Research Institute, the only national policy institute in the U.S. solely dedicated to assessing the rural impacts of public policies. He's also a research professor and associate director of rural policy programs at the Harry S. uh, Truman School of Public Affairs at the University of Missouri. Go Mizzou. Go Mizzou. (laughs) First of all, I'm I'm very curious to hear about your, your, your personal background. Uh, sure. Grew sure. up uh, sure. where? Grew up in eastern Ohio in the Appalachian foothills. I'm the eighth. Uh, my son is the eighth generation on our farm. Uh, we go back in agriculture uh, a long, long time in Appalachia. And, uh, and uh, we also have a number of educators in our family. So we're kind of about teaching and growing food. You can't get any more rural than that part of Ohio in stark contrast to uh, along the lake or, or even true. down in the uh, Cincinnati area. So Very true. you certainly grew up with a sensitivity for yeah. a rural upbringing, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I, I taught Appalachian Studies for uh, 10 years at a couple universities in, in eastern Ohio. Yeah, uh, southeastern Ohio is um, sort of f- the forgotten corner of, uh, of Ohio. Mm-hmm until the shale oil boom, and now everybody's very interested in uh, eastern Ohio. So. Sure. Very typical of uh, Correct. things that we see and experience in, in the western United States Correct. in the uh, 19th century. Of course, it was mining, uh, mineral Correct. extraction and things Correct. that came and went, and Correct. in most cases went. Correct. And one of the biggest issues, uh, frankly, for the shale boom in the United States is to figure out ways to sustain that wealth 
uh, keep your economy diversified. Uh, it is an extraction uh, process, and at the end of the day, uh, it will go away. It may be 10 years. It may be 200. But uh, maintaining our quality of life and assuring we have a diversified economy and value chains out of the shale play uh, hugely critical, and it's a huge role for public policy. States that have bit, built good public trust to take a percentage of the severance tax to build economic and community development in the region where the resources are being extracted, like the Iron Range Trust in, in Minnesota, are wonderful models all states should be looking at. And I know North Dakota, for example, is looking at that right now. Their legislature has a bill before them this year to do that. Mm-hmm. The topic or theme of the summit is why rural matters. It's a uh, ambiguous question with double meaning, right? Uh, and I'm sure that uh, there are many people pondering uh, the implications of that question. Among the things I wanted to ask you about today, obviously there has been a trend ever since the Industrial Revolution, it seems, toward urbanization and urban areas have become more and more and more important uh, during that period of time. What's the current trend? Is it accelerating, decelerating, or has it continued to be so? Sure. Let me, in a nutshell, uh, say three things. Um, The history of capitalism and uh, settlement patterns in developing and developed nations is varied. The impacts of urbanization, both strengths and weaknesses, are varied, but there is an important misnomer which I uh, talked about today, and that is that uh, our nation's GDP is largely the result of what is increasingly called global cities, cities of uh, of approaching a million, uh, and that uh, rural areas are, are deficits. Uh, that arose out of a World Bank study in 2009 where the World Bank argued that Uh, We should no longer make place-based investments on the part of the public sector to think about lifting up regions. We should simply be place-blind and allow the uh, uh, agglomerating global cities to control our our economic future. Uh, The OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is an organization the U.S. is a key partner on, of the 32 developed nations in the world, uh, took a look at that in probably the deepest statistical analysis OECD has ever done. And very interestingly, and this is something I talked about here today, of course, uh, they found that 68% of growth in developed nations does not occur in those global cities. Mm -hmm. It occurs in regions throughout the entire geography of developed nations. And their argument is basically to say uh, the indicators of growth from central city to remote rural are pretty much the same across space, that thinking only about uh, supporting agglomerating global cities would be a huge development mistake, that we should indeed be thinking about regional innovation in broader economies, and the reality is that's what diversified economies are. Mm -hmm. Uh, The message is very clear that the metaphor we have today in Uh, the public intellectual community of our nation that, quote, global cities are the engines of our national economy, that simply is not true. They are critical to our national economy, but two-thirds of economic growth does not come from those places. And what we need to do is ratchet down the rhetoric and ratchet up 
the thinking, the wisdom, and the understanding to say we really do need to reevaluate uh, the relationship between rural places, people, and economies, and urban people, places, and economies. That is what's necessary to begin to explain why rural does matter. Rural matters for three main reasons. National prosperity, we're contributing an amazing amount to national prosperity. Without rural America, we would not have had the transfer of payments balance we had coming out of the Great Recession. Secondly, resilience. We, we without a doubt, are the place where America must turn to when deeper issues of national security are at stake. Forty percent of our people live within 50 miles of the oceans. Climate change is a major issue. There are pandemics occurring all over the world, and the reality is our growing cities are coming to be very close to a diseconomy of scale, and public policy is acknowledging this. The reality is our rural communities and our rural regions not only contribute to prosperity and resilience, but they also, in a major way, are stewards for the natural resources of our nation, giving us uh, all that urban cities need, clean air, clean water, good energy, good food. And we really do need to rethink this whole dialogue. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the uh, Rural Policy Research Institute and the work that you do. Sure. Well, I have the best job in the world. I get to travel around the the nation and world and visit with people like the great folks here at the summit that are building innovative ideas uh, in rural areas all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, RUPRI is a congressionally funded uh, uh, public policy shop. We are uh, in our 25th year. uh, We operate through a cooperative agreement with the Office of the Chief Economist in USDA, And we build teams of researchers and practitioners nationally and around the world uh, taking a look at a rural dynamic in a major public choice, whether it would be the ACA and Obamacare or a rural transportation issue. So we are uh, nonpartisan. We work with governors, uh, legislatures, the U.S. Congress, executive agencies, uh, trying to lay a concerns and consideration framework on a public choice where the rural differential is seldom understood or addressed. Mm -hmm. You spoke a moment ago about how rural America was instrumental in bringing us out of the most recent economic downturn. I wonder if you would elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. Our agriculture and energy transfer of payments was largely responsible for turning that around. And we're looking now at the ancillary benefits of that. We're doing serious reshoring. Advanced manufacturing is coming back to the United States in major ways. And the shale boom that is going to occur all across this nation uh, is an example of the diverse energy systems that largely exist in a rural countryside that, frankly, are going to be, I think, the greatest benefit to our economy of probably anything we've seen in the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. We will become energy self-sufficient over the next 25 years. And that's largely due to the contribution of rural areas. Uh, rural areas. It's not only shale. It's, it's, um, it's the renewables. It's, uh, um, there's a lot of technology going on right now in several renewables, uh, obviously water, obviously solar, but there are others, and, and this will only continue to grow. And 
What we see coming in the future with a distributed energy grid across the United States is a state like Utah uh, that is wonderfully blessed in this regard with a very low energy price uh, is going to be a model for other states to say, could we get a more distributed system at a more local level? Mm-hmm. And we're going to see that explode, I think, over the next 10 years. In your presentation, you spoke about the difference between income and wealth and the difference between wealth flow and stock. That was an interesting point. It's really huge. And uh, <clears throat> I don't want to say that jobs aren't critical. Every politician that gets elected cares about jobs. Jobs are critical. A deeper criticality is good jobs, sustainable jobs, and jobs that have good benefits. Mm -hmm. Those are very different things. And uh, so often the challenge in rural America is um, can we get some jobs without thinking about what that job means, what that job's wage is, does that job have benefits, and is it sustainable, and is it a job that a young woman or man can advance in over time? This has led to a whole new consideration of what uh, we in this field talk about as rural wealth creation, and that is to indicate there are more than one, in fact, there are eight or nine types of wealth that rural regions bring, from financial wealth through environmental wealth, cultural wealth, social wealth, and they play into creating whether or not a place has a diversity of wealth that is sustainable. A job is like water. It moves into a bathtub, and if you pull the stopper out, it drains. A wealth is a sustainable stock, which means you put the bathtub stopper in and the jobs stay where they are. What we need to increasingly think about in in rural economic development is assuring that however we build an economy, we are building it multi-generationally, with linked investment of the public, private, and philanthropic sector in that place, because those are sustainable and are tied to external forces, government, etc. And we need to think of, about it being there in a longer-term framework. Mm-hmm. For example, we mentioned shale. The history of, of our nation's growth has been boom and bust. And Uh, I come from a region that has experienced several of them in Appalachia. We've not kept a lot of that wealth at home. The reality is over the next 20 years in rural America, we're going to transfer more wealth from guys my age, women my age, to the next generation than we have in the entire history up till now. So the next 20 years, we're going to turn more wealth over in rural communities than our entire history. Most of that wealth, unfortunately, is currently targeted for Miami and Tampa and Beijing. It's a wonderful opportunity for communities to begin to think about how they might might retain that wealth in community foundations and public trusts to help the public and private sector advance the quality of place. Because in the end, rural wealth reflects the quality of a place where people live. Is it a diverse place? Is it environmentally friendly? Does it have a diverse economy? Is the acknowledgement of cultural arts and history expressed in the life of that place? Indeed, is it a place your grandchildren will want to live and make a living? And that's the new model. And where it's happening, it's it's palpable. Uh, We're in Cedar City. Uh, The Shakespeare Festival is on. A regional university, an arts 
in economic development strategy. This is as unique an example of what we're talking about as any place in America. Uh, that's the future. Your parks in Utah, 70% of the visitors this year come from other nations. We need to begin to think about the diversity of wealth that our assets would enable us to retain. Today on Access Utah, we're bringing you coverage of the Utah Rural Summit taking place in Cedar City. We're speaking with Charles Fluharty. Charles Fluharty is the founding director of the Rural Policy Research Institute and is one of the keynote speakers at the summit. We'll pause for a break and be back with more from Cedar City. Coverage of the Utah Rural Summit is made possible in part by Utah State University Extension. We'll be right back. And thank you once again for joining us on Utah Public Radio for live coverage from the Utah Rural Summit. Attendees now listening to Lieutenant Governor Greg Bell and radio personality Doug Wright will be addressing the conference a little later in the morning. Thank you for joining us once again. Back with more from Cedar City right after this. Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. We've all heard the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But how many of us actually routinely receive preventive services? Preventive services can include regular physical exams conducted by your primary care physician, blood tests, certain measurements like weight and blood pressure, immunizations, and screening tests to look for signs of cancer or heart disease. All of these services can help your doctor identify common yet potentially serious health concerns early, and early detection means early and hopefully more successful treatment. So how do you know which prevention services you need? The best thing to do is check with your general doctor. He or she should be able to tell you which tests you need and how often you need them, based on your gender, age, and family history. Keeping up with routine health screenings is key to preventing disease and staying healthy. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries, with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome back to Cedar City for our live coverage of the Utah Rural Summit on Access Utah. Coverage of the Rural Summit on Utah Public Radio is provided in part by Utah State University Extension for more than 100 years extending the university to the people to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities. Now back to more of my conversation with Charles Fluharty of the Rural Policy Research Institute. Finally, as you look toward the future, you've talked in your presentation about two Americas emerging, and there are tremendous difficulties in some of our larger urban areas, uh, and we see it with the uh, bankruptcy of the municipality of Detroit, and we've seen it elsewhere in the economic downturn where cities in California were, were upside down uh, to incredible degrees. Talk about the two Americas. Well, I referred to a new book that I think uh, everyone that cares about these issues should probably uh, take a look at. It's by uh, Meredith Whitney. Uh, it's called The Fate of the States, and it is a counterintuitive 
discussion of the two Americas. Uh, she paints a picture of, over the next 25 years, two different, really, countries within the U.S. One that is in a spiral of continual decline where services will be lacking, tax bases are high, uh, pensions cannot be paid, economic activity lags, and entrepreneurship slows. And another America in which household form- formation expands, entrepreneurship grows, uh, economies uh, diversify, and government is flush and whole and helping. Amazingly, of course, she is arguing that the cities of the coasts are the losers and the flyover states, hmm. what she calls the central corridor, are the winners. As you've seen, uh, we had Detroit declare bankruptcy the other day. Mayor Bloomberg had, a, I thought, a very telling set of comments after that about what is about to come next in other cities. Her point is basically around that, that we lived in a bubble in municipal bonds, much like we lived in a bubble in the mortgage crisis. And she called the mortgage crisis early, and it made her a star on Wall Street. She was uh, the first one to say city would not be able to meet, to, uh, to meet their bonding requirements. And she went on, did a huge piece on 60 Minutes in, in 2010 when she was a rock star for the earlier call and basically said our cities are going to go bankrupt if we don't do something. Uh, and she argues that's not immediate, but it's going to come over time. You, you are seeing this drip out every day on our two coasts. Uh, in the heartland, there was a more conservative environment. Uh, we perhaps did not have as large a pension system, and our economies were not quite so boom and bust. Uh, it's an amazing prognostication. Whether it's true or not, it's setting a dynamic in play which more and more folks are thinking about. Fortunately, your state is extremely well positioned in that regard with your current bond rating. Mm-hmm. What must states do to be able to face the challenges that are coming? And does this suggest that rural America is going to become more and more important uh, in contrast to trends that we've seen uh, in the past few decades where urban America has become increasingly more important? Uh, Two comments, and that's a great question. Uh, First comment is I think rural America has a challenge. Rural America's challenge is to create a new narrative that enables urban leadership, urban public intellectuals to realize how critical we are to them, because we indeed will be. Uh, But secondly, we have a deeper stewardship challenge, and that is, given that, uh, how are we thoughtful and wise in terms of our future uh, investment strategies in the land we steward? Uh, Because it is what is unique about rural America, and it is what we give to the nation. Uh, two comments about what happens. Um, it's very clear to me that th- this is not sustainable. And so there's going to be a federalism question. Are we going to reduce pensions? What are we going to do in cities that uh, are going to have to reduce services? Uh, what you're going to see is, I think, what Frederick Jackson Turner once once said in the prior century, which is uh, there's a buffer out there and it's going west. And I think the reality is smaller, more manageable settlements, what we call micropolitan communities, 10 to 50,000, with the outlying uh, contiguous rural area around them, uh, those are going to be very attractive amenities in the future. It's manageable. It's still scalable. But the level of service has largely been self-contained. Many of these places are the anchor 
uh, hubs for uh, healthcare, education institutions. If you look at the most livable cities, it just came out. I forget who it was, maybe money. I'm not sure who, but a bunch of them were college towns. And the reality is those are models that won't get replicated everywhere, but those are models for the next generation. And if I'm a firm citing a new location, I have to make sure I'm putting that plant where the workers there want their kids to grow up and where they have a place that they'll stay near them as they age. Quality of place is going to be the future dynamic. uh, The city scope is increasingly around at about five to six million. You do get huge diseconomies of scale, and uh, our cities are dealing with that today. Yeah. Cedar City is certainly blessed, uh, very, blessed by very the gods. Much, uh, the description that you've just given. Blessed by the gods. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Charles Fluharty is founding director of the Rural Policy Research Institute, the only national policy institute in the U.S. solely dedicated to assessing the rural impacts of public policy, and the keynote speaker this morning at the Utah Rural Summit for the third time. Thanks, <laughs> and appreciate your coverage of these issues. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Along with Meredith Whitney's book, The Fate of the States, Professor Fluhari also recommended to attendees and to our listeners a book entitled The End of Big by Nico Mele. Our thanks to Charles Fluhari for taking time to talk with UPR's Access Utah. The Utah Rural Summit is a service of SUU's Office of Regional Services. I had a chance to sit down with Executive Director of Regional Services for SUU, Wes Curtis. Wes, uh, the 26th annual, it's an opportunity for people to come from all over the state, stakeholders uh, to to meet here and discuss issues that impact our lives here in rural Utah. Talk a little bit about the efforts and how they fit into SUU's goals and mission. Well, uh, the Rural Summit really uh, is something that began at the time that SUU became a university, achieved that status in 1991, and as a comprehensive uh, regional university, President Sherritt and those who worked with him determined that the niche they wanted to fill was to serve the rural constituency in this region and throughout the state. And so at that time, they formed the Utah Center for Rural Life, and uh, with that began the, the first of our uh, rural summit uh, conferences, and this is the 26th one. This summit has become a welcome tradition among its participants, uh, and I'd like to think that's because uh, there is so much preparation that goes into uh, these presentations and the keynote speakers and so forth, so we're really talking about pertinent issues. Yes. I mean, we we work on the summit actually year-round. In fact, uh, in June, I was attending a conference uh, in Buffalo, New York, working on keynote speakers for next year's Rural Summit. Uh, We really try and stay uh, focused on cutting-edge issues that affect rural Utah, rural America, and try and find keynote speakers wherever they may be who really have something important to say to our rural constituency. Mm -hmm. And uh, we like to think that, uh, well, we've had people tell us, and I hope this is true for many, that this is the one conference they don't want to miss each year. Mm We talk about a range of issues, but agriculture, despite the trends that exist uh, nationwide and I suppose worldwide, agriculture continues to be uh, an important part of rural life. Well, agriculture, I think, will always be the foundational component of our rural economy, but agriculture is facing a a lot of serious challenges. It's tough to be a, a small farmer. 
and make a living in agriculture these days. So that's uh, one of the issues that we'll be addressing, and we have Commissioner Leonard Blackham here addressing that issue. And actually, in his title of his session, he says, uh, uh, can agriculture survive, and what have we learned that can help us uh, make sure we do survive? Mm-hmm. Economic development, always a hot issue. Many times we focus on, uh, when people think about economic development, focus on landing that big, big company that will relocate in the town and just totally transform things. That doesn't happen very often, though. What we've seen in recent years is a lot of discussion about economic gardening. Can you explain that to me? And I notice it's on the agenda again this year. Yes, uh, 60% of our jobs come from small business in Iron County. And, in fact, uh, we did a study and have determined that even if if 25% of our small businesses could grow by 25%, that would create 1,000 new jobs in Iron County. That's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And so that's where our focus is in our efforts is to help stimulate small business in the county. In a nutshell, economic gardening in its true uh, sense is connecting small businesses with the kind of market data, and through economic gardening we can connect a a small business to the types of databases that Fortune 500 companies use that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. for them to license. Uh, We have ways to connect them at a, a very nominal fee. Agriculture and economic gardening, just a few of the issues featured at the 2013 edition of the Utah Rural Summit. You're listening to UPR's continuing coverage of the Utah Rural Summit in Cedar City. It's time for another break. When we come back, we'll hear from Governor Gary Herbert, who spoke with the conference attendees yesterday. I also had a chance to sit down one-on-one with Congressman Rob Bishop, who also addressed the summit. This broadcast is made possible in part by Utah State University Extension. We'll be back after these messages from our underwriting sponsors. Thank you for joining us once again for our live coverage of the Utah Rural Summit in Cedar City. The summit is a service of SUU's Office of Regional Services and is made possible, as we have said, with the help of many sponsors, including Utah State University Extension. The conversation with Charles Fluharty, quite interesting in the respect that he is outlining a rise in the influence of rural America as uh, we look toward important economic factors like the exploration of energy reserves and so forth, which rely much, much more on rural America than urban America. Once again, it's time for a break from our underwriting sponsors. We'll be back with more live here in Cedar City at the Utah Rural Summit. You're tuned to Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater through August 10th in Logan, presenting Pirates, Ghost Ship Curses, and Treasure in Wagner's thriller, The Flying Dutchman. Information at utahfestival.org. This is folk singer Michael Jonathan inviting you to tune in to the next broadcast of Wood Songs. We have a great blues and soul singer, Nikki Hill, and an amazing harmonica player, Rick Estrin. It's both artists for music and conversation on the next broadcast of the Woodside Old Time Radio. Friday night at 11 on Utah Public Radio. 
Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us today for our UPR Access Utah coverage of the Utah Rural Summit from the campus of Southern Utah University in Cedar City. Our thanks also to the Utah State University Extension for its support of the Utah Rural Summit and for making this special edition of Access Utah possible. Governor Gary Herbert addressed the Rural Summit on its opening day. As one might expect, Herbert focused on the state's business climate and on economic development. Job one.
Among Herbert's primary economic development concerns involves the state's development of its energy resources, an effort in which Utah's rural areas can play a principal role. Nevertheless, Herbert reminded rural stakeholders of the roadblocks that stand in the way of success, and knowing that Congressman Rob Bishop would address the audience specifically on Utah's public lands issues, the governor also took the opportunity to weigh in.
Governor Gary Herbert speaking to the Utah Rural Summit. The Thursday afternoon keynote address was delivered by Congressman Rob Bishop, a Republican from Utah's 1st Congressional District. The congressman sits on the House Committee on Natural Resources, as well as the Subcommittee on Public Lands and Environmental Regulation. He is, in fact, the chairman of that subcommittee. I had an opportunity to sit down one-on-one with Representative Bishop. And I'm speaking now with Congressman Rob Bishop. Uh, Congressman Bishop, you're here to participate in a panel discussion, also to deliver an address. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're bringing to the summit in terms of information. The governor talked a little bit about uh, some programs you're involved in uh, that had to do with uh, the word bargain. <laughs> I hate that name for it. I wish you'd quit using that. That was, that was not a country that came from us. Uh, so the governor was kicking this off. Uh, I'm here during the lunch hour, so I'm supposed to give everyone a good nap. I see. And bore them to death. Um, and we will be talking about what I see as, as the definite need to do some, some shifting in the way we look at things. Um, with, with, when it comes to public lands, every 60 to years, there's always a paradigm shift. We're about 60 80 years from the last time we looked at things differently. And the key element for that simply has to be empowering grassroots and empowering the states to make decisions. Uh, we are well past the era where the West has to be protected from itself by Washington. Unfortunately, that is still the paradigm in which we exist, and that has to be broken in some way. Mm-hmm. And it means that we have to start looking at the situations differently than we have in the past. And we need to be a little bit smarter and more tactical and strategic in the way we go about those issues. There have been some efforts on the part of the legislature, on the part of uh, organizations throughout the state of Utah to push back, if that's the right term. Uh, My question, I guess, is, is is Utah acting alone here, or is there a general feeling of dissatisfaction with the present paradigm that's uh, common, not throughout the country necessarily, but certainly throughout the West where so much of our lands are tied up. Look, the governor and the legislature, especially Ken Ivory, have done a great job in starting on a path of looking at things differently and being prepared for questions that have not been able to be answered in the past. Mm -hmm. What we are feeling in Utah, everyone in the Intermountain West feels the same way. Unfortunately, it is atypical for the rest of the nation because they don't have the concept of federal lands. Look, there are there is a national park in 49 of the 50 states. The head of the National Park Service in the 60s realized he had more parks and more districts, you get more money, and it worked. Only 13% of what the nation owns is national parks, but it's close to everybody. Mm-hmm. So when you go back east and talk to people about public lands, they think of a pretty tree by a lake. It's a national park. 45% of all the land is BLM land, but it's only found here in the west. There is no BLM land of which to speak anywhere east of Denver. So when we think of public lands, we think of rolling sagebrush. We think of area that's vastly different from a park setting. So we're using the same verbiage with people in the east, but they have an entirely different mindset. That's one of the things we have to break down. So they recognize the public land is not just, not all public land is Yellowstone. There are all sorts of different varieties, and therefore there should be different capabilities. We also have to break down the idea that just because you create an area as wilderness is not the same thing as preserving recreation. Outdoor recreation is being attacked on all fronts, from hunting and fishing to cycling, any any other kind. 
those those types of situations, once again, we have to explain to people in the East that just because you draw a boundary here and say, okay, you can do all sorts of activities on the east side of the boundary doesn't mean you guarantee that unless you specifically say we're going to guarantee that activity mm-hmm. can take place. Mm-hmm. Will this be done any other way than coming to, to, to blows, uh, coming to political uh, uh, battles with one another? I hope so. Um, obviously, this administration, in all due respect to the president, he's from Chicago, The world to him is Chicago. He does not understand Western lands or Western issues. Mm -hmm. The current Secretary of Interior, I'm going to give some slack because she does understand it. She's got a business background. So far, she's been pretty helpful in saying, okay, let's see if we can work some things out. But um, this administration has been woefully lax in actually trying to solve problems that deal with public lands. And, uh, and, we're going to try to do it the right way, um, and if not, we'll try to do it more ingenious way. But somehow, it's got to be changed. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you. From the Hunter Conference Center on the campus of Southern Utah University, thank you for listening to Access Utah. I'm UPR's Southern Utah correspondent, Chris Holmes. Coverage of the Utah Rural Summit, now in its second and final day, has been made possible by Utah State University Extension. In its 26th year, the Utah Rural Summit is an annual conference held in Cedar City, Utah, bringing county, municipal, and state leaders, as well as other stakeholders from throughout Utah, to explore issues that impact rural life, to hear from experts and get the latest information pertaining to rural life, and to discuss those policies that would be necessary to maintaining, expanding political, cultural, and economic relevance of rural communities. As we noted, the summit is wrapping up today. Lieutenant Governor Greg Bell addressed the group this morning, and there was a panel discussion uh, that followed, and radio personality Doug Wright of KSL Radio will wrap up the conference with a keynote address a little later this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us today for UPR's coverage of the Utah Rural Summit from Cedar City. I'm Chris Holmes. Support for programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and Utah State University Extension, serving the people of Utah to improve the quality of life for individuals, families, and communities for more than 100 years. Information at extension.usu.edu.